Well, greetings, everybody. Glad to be with you all. I have been, um, we've been working together through um, a series on Ephesians chapter 4. Um, I presume most of you know that. You can turn there in your Bible if you want to. We're going we're gonna to read that. But, you know, we always refer to this as apest. I guess it's apept if you're a King James person. What's a, what's a, what's a apostle? P? E? S? Shepherd and T? We're going to focus on E today. We talked about apostles and prophets before, and today we'll talk about evangelists. So why don't we start in the text there in Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll, we'll go ahead and start in verse 1 in that. <clears throat> I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation, the job, the thing that you're made to do, wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us, every one of us, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? And he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. For, this is, what, this is why we're taking the time to work through these. These things are for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working, in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Since we're, since a bunch of us are joined together, maybe you all haven't heard like the premise for how we're, we're looking at this, I'll do a quick recap. The premise is that those promises that we just read, the consequences of Jesus bringing these gifts and giving them to the church, is that we, we, we can expect to produce what, if, if we use these gifts, if we have all five of these gifts working the way that God intended them to work in the body, 
that we can expect the results that he gave them to us for, namely that we should be mature, that we wouldn't be deceived, that we'd, we'd come eventually to perfection. And so graphically the way we've been thinking about that, and I'll just say at the outset once, um, once again, uh, I'm, I'm very much indebted, like th these are ideas and practices that we've been practicing. You know, you, you read sometimes a book and you're like, ah, that's what we've been thinking about. That's what we're talking about. The book in this case is Alan Hirsch's Permanent Revolution. If you haven't read that, you should read it. I always recommend it. And a lot of the like graphic way of explaining this um, and some of the ideas are reinforced in that book by Alan Hirsch. But the premise is that if you have these gifts, A, P, E, S, T, we have this foundation of unity and cohesion that all this is built on. And Jesus came and he erects these pillars as gifts over the church. And, and on that is this, these things that are promised, this maturity, perfection, and stability, and fruitfulness. The thing that we've been considering is that in many, many cases, what's happened, particularly in the modern Western church, is that the church has been built out of just a shepherds and teachers. So graphically, what happens is we've, we've eradicated these from the official ministries of the church, and we're expecting just this to hold this up. And that's not a sustainable idea. If God gave us all five of these things to establish this, then those five things are necessary to produce this. And so we're revisiting as a church, what does it mean? Who's in these categories and how do these gifts function? And what do they produce in the body that makes us able to get to this goal? Okay, so that's the, that's the introduction. That's the idea that we're working off of. And we're examining each of these gifts in turn. So when we talk about uh, apostles, we, we, the, the terminology we use, the definition we use, is that the, the apostolic ministry are custodians of the DNA of the church. So they're the ones that are sent out from the local body to go spread the church, to cause it to grow in places where it isn't. And as such, it's, they are charged with making sure that what they are making is what they're coming from, that there's continuity with the historic faith, that what we're trying to produce out in front, where we're being sent to, is consistent with where the church is coming from. So that has to do with what is the gospel and what are the teachings of the church and how do we keep the church on, on track. Um, the next gift we talked about was prophets. And prophets are often confused with future tellers. Future telling in the prophetic sense is a tool of the prophetic ministry. But the main purpose, there are many tools. Allegory is a tool. Lifestyle is a tool. You know, you look at Ezekiel or Hosea, for instance, and the way that they're like the, the thing that they're living in their life is the prophecy. So when 
God tells Ezekiel to go in the middle of the town square, take, cut off all your hair and take a third of it and throw it in the wind and take a third of it, burn it and take a third of it and bury it in the ground. What he's doing in his life is actually the analogy of what it is the prophecy. It is the message that God's trying to make to his people. But the central premise of the prophetic, what the prophet's job is to do, is to, to remind God's people of their covenant obligations. That's really their job. So the prophet, he sees... God's ideal, what God's calling us to, and where people are at. And he stands in between that bridge. And he's calling people into what God wants them to be. Now today we're going to focus on the evangelist. I want to start by by just thinking about, and you don't need to turn to these, they're just some quick reference points for scripturally where we start with thinking about the gift of evangelism. The interesting thing about this gift is that <clears throat> it's, one of, it's one gift that's very um, expressly rooted in, in Jesus and his ministry. I mean, all of these things are we see attributes of Jesus doing all these things, but, but there's nothing like this in Luke 19 where it says, for the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which is lost. Like it's part of the identity of who the Messiah is, is to seek and to save that which is lost. His, his purpose for being here is specifically for the good news, for the Evangelion. And that's not surprising. He's the central figure of the Evangelion. He's the king of the kingdom and all these things. But what he's doing when he comes and he begins his ministry and he sends out the 70 two by two is he's establishing this evangelistic premise that we're going to go and we're going to tell people that the kingdom is at hand and we want you to come. And so we can root and ground this particular ministry very, very extensively in Jesus' own actions and calls and words. In that sense, it's one of the most explicit New Testament ministries. In Mark 16, it says, And he said to them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Also in Matthew 28, same commission. This, he, he begins and he ends effectively with a call to evangelism. And so we can expect that this is a very, very important ministry. Now, every Christian has a duty and a debt to the gospel. Every one of us. If you're in Christ, you have a debt and an obligation to the gospel. And I want to I talk about that a little bit. Because we're going to differentiate between the gift of an evangelist and what we all do in relation to the gospel. And how do we tell what the difference between those two things is? Because I do think there's a difference. There's a special gifting of evangelism. But there's also these, these premises that we all have, every one of us, when we come into the kingdom of God, has a part to play in, in spreading the good news of, the, of Jesus Christ. And so, so what are those things? There's a lot of there's a lot of like skills that every Christian should possess. Every Christian should um, should know how to concisely communicate the gospel. Like 
to be able to say, here is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in a, in a, in a concise way. Every Christian should be able to enumerate those things. And if you don't have a good sense for what that is, if somebody were to come to you and say, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? You should be able to answer that question. If you don't, we would love to, we would love to talk about how to answer that question well. If, if that's somewhere where you don't feel like, I, I know what it is, like, but it's such a big thing, I don't know exactly how to say it, we want to help. We want all of us to be well-equipped to answer that question. And we want to be ready to answer that question. We want to be quick to be able to say, here's what our purpose is as the people of God. We, we, we can understand it well. So every one of us needs to know how to concisely communicate the gospel. Every one of us needs to have um, experience and practice sharing our personal testimony because this is a huge part of what it means to share the gospel of Jesus Christ is to talk about from a personal place where I was then and where I am now, how I moved from outside of the kingdom of God to inside of the kingdom of God. This is a huge benefit to the whole people of God, to the whole kingdom, that each of us have this illustrative story of how God works with an individual and brings them into the kingdom. That's something that we should all possess and know how to do well. And if you don't, then we need to look for opportunities to practice it. We should do that among ourselves. Like in, in, at Bartlett, we've been trying to make room to, to share our testimony with one another so that we have a good sense, because it does a lot, right? It does a lot to know how God worked with you and how he brought you in. It describes, it, 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 it helps me understand who you are when I know where God found you and how he brought you into the kingdom. So that personal testimony is an important thing. Another thing that we all need to have is a heart and a desire for the lost. Now, there's a certain sense in which I think of the I think of the church and the different gifts that we all have, you know, like you can think of the military that way. If there's a war going on, if America's fighting a war, well, not everybody is standing on a field pulling a trigger on a gun. There are people making food, there are people in the mailroom, there are people doing policies, there are people, you know, running supply chains, there are people doing all kinds of things to make that war effort work. And there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is like that as well, that all of us have a part to play in the ultimate mission of the church to expand the kingdom of God. But we don't all always play the same role. There are different places for each of us to be in that. And, and, and ideally, we're in the place that matches our, our giftings and our strengths and our capabilities, and that we're organized together well. So we understand this is a huge part of why I've, I've, I've been eager to spend the time when I, when I share with the church talking about what is happening with the gifts because I want us to know, I want you to know what your gift is and I want you to know, I want you to be able to recognize what your brothers and sisters gifts are so that we can be efficient, so that we can work well together, so that we know, so that I know I'm not as good at this. I either need to bring somebody in to help me do this or, or move this over to somebody who's better at doing it so that I can be in the role where I should be so, I'm, so that we're all as efficient as we can and productive as we can as a whole group of people to do the work that God sent us here to do. So those are three. There's probably more, but just a way of thinking about putting it in all of our minds. All, I don't want anybody to walk away from me teaching on the gift of evangelism and say it's not my job. Like There is parts of this because the gospel is central to the evangelist. There is something that has to do with this that's all of our concerns, whether you have a gift as an evangelist or not. And it's, it's at least these things. To, to know what the gospel is and be able to communicate it, to have a personal testimony that you're capable of sharing, and to really care, to really 
care and pray and, and sorrow for the lost because the consequences are great and they're dire and it matters that we all care for the lost, that it motivates us as a people. First Peter 3 says that we should, it's in the context of persecution and this, that's an interesting context for me. He's talking about them suffering, and he says, in the midst of their suffering, to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the reason, a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. So even when it costs you, you have to, what, he's, what the apostle is saying is, even if it's going to cost you pain and suffering, you can't, you can't ignore who you are. You need, to, you need to be able to locate your identity in the gospel and be ready to answer for why that is. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, and to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When I was, when I was a young Christian, I, I got involved in a lot of street evangelism. And one of my main pursuits was that I wanted to prove to myself and to the world around me that I was not ashamed of the gospel. It was an exercise for me to, to establish, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I don't care who thinks I'm a fool. I don't care who thinks I'm ridiculous. I don't care. And I, was, I wanted to prove that to myself and to the world around me. And I'm, I'm glad that I did that. It, it gave me a confidence that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Evangelism is also one ministry that the Lord tells us specifically to pray for. In Matthew 9 and 37, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. That's noteworthy to me. I, I always wonder, whenever time I read that passage... It always strikes me as funny. You know, there's these things that Jesus says throughout the Gospels that when I read them, I think, I always think, that's not how I would have said that. I, I, I wonder why he said it that way. Because to me, like, if, if, I, was, if I was in Jesus' shoes and I'm trying to get people to care about the harvest, I would have said, the, look, the fields are white into harvest. Go out into the harvest and work. But he doesn't say that. He tells the people that he wants to work in the harvest to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into this field. I think that's an important step in regards to the work of evangelism. Because I think, I, what I think that Jesus' purpose in doing that, and putting that extra intervening step, is that the things that we pray about are the things that we care about. And I think what Jesus is doing in telling the disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the field is that it, it creates a consciousness within those disciples to be looking and seeing and caring about that before they go and do the work. An example of this, you know, when quite a few years ago, <clears throat> um, we used to, at our regular prayer meeting, when the Syrian refugee crisis was becoming very hot and very problematic and and it was becoming more and more miserable every day and the news stories were getting worse and worse 
we we were praying a lot in our in our prayer meetings at, at Finney's on Tuesday mornings. We were praying a lot about the Syrian refugee crisis, and what can we do? And Lord, can you restrain the passions of men? We need. We're praying for peace. We want to intervene in these horrible situations. We like we don't know what to do. And you find yourself again and again at that situation when you're bearing a burden and you're saying, Lord, I don't know how to help. I don't know what I can do, but I know this is horrible, and I know you're needed here, and I know your people are needed here what can I don't I don't know what to do but I have to bring it to you as a concern and a, and a pain that I'm bearing my heart and then I remember when that little child washed up on the shore of, of Greece and it was on all the newspapers and it was such a horrifying scene to see this little child washed up dead on a shore fleeing war and terror and famine and all these horrible things and and it just like burned inside of us like I can't just pray about this anymore what can we do and all of that preparation really affected our hearts and and then there was fruit and then the brothers went down and started getting involved in the Boston Islamic Center and started meeting with those people started making connections started making relationships and then asked like hey you people at the mosque is there some are there refugees here that we can help I have friends today I have good friends today that are the direct result of those prayer meetings. Good Iraqi friends that we met through the mosque that came from praying before trying to work. And so I don't want to, I, I want to, I don't want to miss this step. It's important for the evangelists and for all of us to pray about the harvest, to learn to see in our closets the needs before we try to run out and do the work. And I think that's why he says this. Another noteworthy thing about this particular call is that um, it's a direct result of the Spirit's work. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It's a direct fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in his people that we will go out and be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the difference between these common calls to be witnesses, to, be, to have an, a reason for the hope, and what, what this particular gift is that comes specifically from Jesus to the church as the evangelist. One way that we can define the evangelist, let's write it down. We're going to define evangelists by what they do. So the evangelist is always looking to create, and that's an important part of the definition, to create a positive interaction between people and the gospel. And this might be 
This might be through the scriptures, through God's people, through personal interactions and relationships, through all kinds of ways. But the evangelist, his central purpose is to create a positive interaction between people who are outside the gospel and the gospel itself. They want to, they, they want to work like a magnet. They want to pull people into relation with the gospel and experience with God through the gospel. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The people that, um, a, a shorter way to say it is, is that they're, uh, you, we could call them recruiters for kind of a crass definition. Or um, yeah, that's a re recruitment is a good is a good way to think of it. They want to enlist people to the cause, but that, that misses. I, I don't like that one as much. Enlisting people to the cause that's that's somewhere in the neighborhood, but but I think at the heart of the evangelist, it's more about people having an experience with the gospel itself. Like that, that very personal connection between an individual and the gospel. So let me, th this was later in my notes, but let me put it in here. Going back to my own personal experience, right? So I did a lot of this street evangelism. And so, you know, bullhorns, gospel signs, yelling outside of parties, the whole, the whole nine yards, right? I would have called that evangelistic work when I was younger. We called it street evangelism. I actually think it was much more prophetic in me than evangelistic. And the way I make the distinction is that I felt a burden that people should know the truth, like that people should be warned, that people should be conscious of God and the realities of God's world. And that was my main duty. That was my main obligation. That was my main purpose and hope was to accurately communicate the truth to people. But whether they listened or didn't, I mean, it's not that it didn't matter to me, but it, I, it wasn't the point. The point was to tell the truth in a way that people heard and would listen. But, but the, the difference between that and the evangelist is that the evangelist, he, uses the, he, he may use those, those mechanisms but the end for the evangelist is not just that people should hear the truth or that they should be warned or that they should know something that they didn't know before. But the point to the evangelist is that the person has an experience with the gospel. That's what he's chasing. That's what he's pursuing. He doesn't want just that the message should be heard, but he wants that the message should be heard and received. And it's the reception of the message that's the central tenet for the evangelist. He wants it to get all the way home. He wants to make sure that whatever he's doing is not just putting that in the air, not just making it manifest, but that it's becoming real to the person who hears. And those are different, that's a difference of motivation. The traits of an evangelist is that they're, they're generally very persuasive people. People, um, they're... Um, they're good at making a case. And people listen to them and are, are compelled by the things that they say. Generally, people in the evangelist category are high EQ. They're, they're good at reading people and understanding how they're being 
heard and they're, they're, are you tracking? They, they're good at knowing if somebody's tracking with them. If you missed a step, I got to circle back and tell you again, like, oh no, you're not really getting that. They, they, have a, they have a good capacity to read where people are at and gauge that they're understanding and, and, and receiving what's being communicated. They're generally winsome. They have a lot of friends, people kind of gravitate towards them. They're good at making social connections because they love people so very much. They, they really want the best for the people around them. They're caring. Evangelist people are, are, are intensely involved in what, what's happening in people's lives. And, and one way I would describe the people that I've known that have this gift is that, I don't know how to say it more succinctly, but they, they're really good at keeping the main thing the main thing. Because they're very, like, a, they have an agenda and a goal. They want people to have an experience with the gospel. And so they're, they're, they're generally pretty good at pushing aside the things that aren't central to that purpose. Like, um, you'll watch an evangelist and he's good at, he's good at like, people, people will try to sidetrack a conversation into some periphery matter. And the evangelist, a, a, a person who's good at evangelism, is good at putting that back on track to the central issue. Like, I, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about, like, I'm not going to get bogged down in, in the details of an apologetic argument over creation or whatever the case may be. I want to get back to the gospel. I want to get back to your life and God. That's where we want to talk. And so they're good at keeping those main things. So like, periphery, like, theoretical doctrinal issues aren't usually as concerning to the evangelist. He, he, he's concerned with what does it have to do with the gospel? I, if it doesn't have something to do with that, it's out there somewhere, but it's not my central premise. Um, and generally, generally they're, they're, they're people with a lot of, a lot of friends. So, I want to move from here, after kind of describing some of the traits of, of evangelistic people, I want to talk about the work of evangelism and, and what it is that these people are trying to do and how we should think of it. I, ha I, I wonder uh, if you've known evangelists. You probably have. There's, there's, there's a lot of them. I think when I think back in my life at people who I've known who are evangelists, there's a few that come to mind. Quite a few, actually. I've had the good fortune of being friends with some some really committed evangelists. There's one man that I knew. Uh, his name's Stephen. He he's an old friend of mine, and I was I've watched him in a lot of different places. And he's a very small, meek, kind, very gentle man. But there's something about when he gets to the gospel, he just like becomes a lion. Like he has so much boldness and care and compassion. Like he just becomes a different person when he talks about the gospel. He becomes so animated and so, so eager to get people to hear what he's trying to say and willing to sacrifice and all kinds of things. It's been really, it's, it's been a huge blessing in my life to be around people like that who are so animated by the power of the gospel to change people's lives. Another man in my, in my history who, who was an evangelist was my own grandfather. Um, my, my, my grandfather's a Baptist preacher, and, and when, I, when I became a Christian and went a different path, he and I had a lot of conflict. But, but 
but what I can say about my grandfather is that I, I, didn't, I only saw him a few times a year. We lived in different parts of the country, but I saw him very regularly a few times a year. And I never, I never was anywhere with my grandfather where he didn't talk to everyone that we met about Jesus. It, it was like he couldn't help himself. Like it was a compulsion. He, he couldn't meet somebody without saying something about Jesus. And that kind of drive and passion is something that the evangelist possesses naturally. Like it comes from God. Like they, they just, it's the only thing they want to talk about. It's so pressing and so needful that they, they have to talk to you about Jesus. And, and I had lots of, you know, I had lots of embarrassing moments as a child like come on grandpa do we have to do this at the restaurant like leave the poor lady alone i was kind of a sh- i as a as a non-christian i was kind of ashamed to be with my grandfather but as i grew it's a huge part of why i became a christian is because i knew that there were people out there in spite of a lot of other um counterexamples i knew there were people like my grandfather who really who were really convinced who it was the real deal for them whether he did it well or not, he was going to do it. That's, that's the point. And I loved him for it. And I respected him a lot for it. So let's talk about the work of the evangelist. And this is where I think there's a really important conversation to be had in the church about how we should equip and train and, and, and empower our evangelists. And I think that it's... Um, there's some ideas in a, in a book. Um, it's uh, Conversion in the New Testament by Richard Peace. And one of the central premises of his book is that the way that we think about conversion affects how we work as evangelists. And, and his, his argument is that, and I, I tend to agree with him very much, in the, Western, in the modern Western church, our idea about conversion is very much fixed on notions of like Paul on the road to Damascus, a crisis event that happens in somebody's life, and, and it's an immediate change that radically alters their situation. And there's lots of reasons for why that is. You know, you think of, of the premise of, of the evangelical wing of the Protestant church. You think of like the old radio shows, the Billy Graham, like the conversion stories that that if you grew up in church, in, a, in an evangelical church, you grew up hearing people's conversion stories, how they were in a car accident or they were high on drugs and God spoke to them or they were in a jail cell or some other thing. And these things just, they get, in the churches I grew up in, they just got paraded through again and again. And, and all the context about what it means to become a Christian is to have some kind of rock bottom experience and some kind of miraculous intervention and some kind of miraculous deliverance. And that's like the... That's the, the, the ultimate idea of conversion. It's Saul on the road to Damascus. It's some kind of crisis, miraculous intervention that causes an immediate change. But that's not how the disciples became Christians. And it's not how most of the people that we read about in the book of Acts became Christians. There are some notable examples, you know, uh, the Philippian eunuch, I mean the Philippian jailer, um, the eunuch, you know, he's translated and there he is and what him, you know, these like moment in time, everything comes together and conspires to make something happen. It's all in the road of masses. There are these events, 
But when you look at the numbers of how most people in the New Testament epoch are coming to and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ and becoming a part of the church, it's an entirely different experience. And that different experience, like think of how it happens with the disciples. Through a process of walking with Jesus and hearing his testimony and hearing his teaching and seeing his life, they become convinced over time that this is the one. And he asks them from time, who do you think I am? Like, it's not established, right? He's establishing it then and there with them. Like, it's a revelation at that moment in time when Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of God. So, so all this time that they're spending walking in his shadow, listening to his teachings, following what he's saying, being willing to go out and, and listen again and again and, and do all these things with him, that process changes, it, it, it shapes their mind and who he is to the place where they can come to say, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and what I think is an important contention is that that is an important function of what evangelists do. The exact same thing. They create space in people's lives to have those same kind of experiences where they're teaching and showing and manifesting the Spirit of God in people's lives so that over time, they come to a place where they're like, this Jesus is the one. That's it. I I'm convinced that's the right way. Another way of thinking about this as, for pa as parents is, like for those of us who had, let me back this up for a minute. I think in certain terms of my own conversion as a crisis conversion, right? Like I'm a skinhead on the streets, I'm living this terrible life, all this crazy stuff is going on. But when you actually slow down the clock and look at where is the phase where I went from questioning my life to becoming a Christian, it's not a moment in time. It's a process that God walked me through. And I can remember the steps along the way. I can remember thinking this and having a question and thinking this and having a question. What about this? And how am I going to deal with this? And what does this mean? Until I finally got to the place where... No, I'm wrong about everything, and Jesus is right. That's what I want my life to be about. But it doesn't, for most people in the biblical record and in history, that's not a moment in time. There are some remarkable examples to the contrary. But for most people, even somebody like me who's coming from literally from the gutter to the church, it's a process. It's a process of being convinced that I want to repent, I want to change my life, and I want to follow Jesus. And the evangelist is the person that wants to be in that space, walking people through that. Wants to be creating, creating those positive experiences with the gospel. And so that means oftentimes that the evangelist is the person that wants to be down there. You know, there was a, there was a man in my life who, one of the only respectable people, like, a normal guy with a normal family from the Christian church that wanted to talk to me, this roughneck skinhead, out making a mess of his life. He wanted to sit down and have breakfast with me. He wanted to talk to me about what was happening in my life and why. He wanted to care about me. He wanted to ask me questions about what was happening and why. Like, he just cared about me. And that made space for Jesus to work in my life. And that's what the evangelist does. It, it was a place, a person who was there to, to ask me some questions, but really to make me know that he cared about me, and he cared about me because God cared about me. And that's what evangelists do. And so, 
So I think that we should, we, we sh there's some healthy skepticism about how we've been thinking about everybody having to run through a crisis experience. That, that, that in the evangelical churches I grew up in, the way that you made a difference in the world is that you invited people to church so that the preacher who was really good at his job could say something really spectacular and cause someone to have one of these experiences. And that was, that was my version of evangelism as a young Baptist child, door knocking and, and inviting your friends to, to come to church on Sunday, Sunday, and who can invite the most friends, and so that we could all come and hear the preacher give a message that would put somebody on the road to Damascus, that would give them that crisis experience where everything would change in a night. And that's, that's, I don't think that's the goal. I think the goal is to be in people's lives, to be creating space in relationships, to be nurturing people's impulse to want to ask about God, to be there to answer questions when things are hard or when they're not, or when they're existential or when they're just struggling or when they're, they need a friend or they're happy or whatever the case may be, to be there and to bring Christ into people's lives, that's the work of an evangelist. And that's what creates sustained change in people's lives. It's what brings people into the kingdom. So, so back to parenting. My children have heard us give our testimony all kinds of times over the years. They know where we come from and they know what our lives were like. And, and, and since, I was a, since I first started having children, I started thinking about this idea like, well, what does this mean for my children? Like, I don't want my children to be skinheads. That's not the path they should come into the church. I, I don't want them to have a horrible mess of sin and ruining their lives in order to be at rock bottom to find God to come into the church. So what does it mean for them? How do they come into the church? What's the path? What's the normal path, right? That's what I'm asking. What's the normal path into the church? Like, I'm a firebrand. I'm plucked out of a fire. But how does God work in other cases? And so I spent a lot of time wondering about this and asking myself this question. And now that, that some of my children have started to get baptized and join the church, I've noticed a phenomenon that happens over and over again. And I think, <clears throat> I call it the experiential gap. When we raise our children in the church, they have a sense of normalcy around these concepts. And that's a blessing. That's, a, they, that's an inheritance of theirs to grow up in the church. Things that were scandalous and provocative to me are normal to them because they've grown up with these ideas like loving your enemies, like Jesus is the Messiah, like you have to, you have to commit your whole self to God and his kingdom. These are things that they grow up with that were revelations to us, that were stark contrasts to our lived experience. And so, so our children grow, and at a certain point, they realize that I can't, I can't maintain my identity as a fixture in the Christian community under my parents' identity as Christians. Like, I, I, I'm not properly a Christian because I haven't had my own experience with God. So I know the scriptures, I know a lot of principles of truth, and, and what the hard thing for, for my children has been, when do I choose, right? Like, when do I just decide, Tuesday's a normal day and I'm just a millioni child, on Wednesday I'm going to become a Christian and be baptized? 
When do you make that choice? And, and what it leaves hanging, the question it begs is like, where does God work in my life to cause that to happen? And what I do, what I've done with, with my children who have gone through that phase, is that I say, let's look at the book of Acts and let's catalog how people became Christians. Let's look at what the normal process of someone coming into the kingdom of God looks like. And there's a pattern that emerges when you begin to look at the apostolic preaching and the development of the first churches. And the pattern is this. Someone comes and presents the gospel of Jesus. The people are convicted. The people repent. The people are baptized. That's how almost everybody that becomes a Christian in the first century under the apostolic era became a Christian. And, and what I reinforce to my young people is that the reason that we, we practice and teach adult baptism is because you have capacity to choose to follow Jesus. That's what he's asking. When, when, when Peter stands up on Pentecost, he says, you have done this. You are responsible for this situation. You should receive Jesus. You should listen to the gospel. And their response is, you're right. What should we do? Be baptized for the mission of sins. The acknowledgement and the conviction and the willingness to repent is the catalyst for those people becoming Christians. And that's what we're looking for. So, so if, if young person in the church, if you know the gospel message, and if you're convicted, and if you want to repent and, 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 and commit your life to following Jesus as a disciple, then you should get baptized. That's what it takes. And, and that feels hard. And what I've, what I've noticed is that the, the activation energy to make that step is what proves the validity of that step. The willingness to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose for myself. I want in. I want to follow Christ. I want to be a disciple. That's what proves it. And then, we, and then we're baptized, we come into the church, and we begin to grow as Christian people in the church. <clears throat> and... <clears throat> So that's analyzing one particular facet like for Christian children in the church of how they, how they go through an evangelistic encounter. But we can do that. You can imagine how that happens with your neighbor, with your friend, with your brother, with your cousin, with your aunt, with whoever. Like It's the same thing. It's, it's getting them through those phases. Here the, here's what the gospel is. I'm, you're, I think you're right. I'm willing to make changes in my life to follow that and make it, make it true for me. Let's get baptized. Now come into, the, come into the church and be a part of the people of God. <coughs> so the, the evangelist, I think, properly considered is not, is not necessarily the confrontational street preacher but the one that's leveraging his personal influence to move people into experiences with God. Experiences with God, experiences with his spirit, and experiences with his people. The skills of the evangelist, they do include boldness. Boldness is an important skill for the evangelist. And, and it's an important skill for all of us. The fear of man is a big hindrance. Like, I... I, I I'm sure that all of you and I myself have felt 
that impulse to not want to stand out, that impulse not to want to be the fool, not want to say something when you feel like you should say something. And we need to, you need to mark those things and, and recognize them as failures and, and choose that when I hear that, I'm going to respond. I'm going to listen to God. I'm, I'm willing to step out. I'm willing to say what needs to be said. All of us need that kind of boldness because we're evaluating our, our priorities in those situations. And, and when we choose the fear of men or reputation or some other thing, over what we are burdened, convicted that God wants us to do in a particular case, it's a, it's a failure. We need to mark those events and minimize them and change our behavior. Boldness is important in regards to all of this, but it's just as important to be able to assess people where they're at and what they need to move them forward in looking to Christ. It's not just about being bold. It's also about being wise and seeing where people are at and seeing what they need to hear and having a word fitly spoken, like the right thing at the right time that, that pushes people one step closer to Christ, one step closer to considering the truth, one step closer to finding peace with God, one step closer to turning away from their sin and looking to Jesus for their forgiveness and salvation. Another important skill is the ability to ask the right questions. Question asking, I, um, I think, I think, do you ask, do you have, do you guys do questioning evangelism in your evangelism class? I think that's where I got it. Um, I started doing that with one of my church plants recently, the book Questioning Evangelism, and the premise is learning how to use questions, provocative questions, instead of just always answering like, what do you think about this? Learning to stop that conversation and slow it down and, and wonder for yourself and for the person you're talking to, why are you asking me that? Why is that the thing that you want to, that you want to bring up here? There's so many smoke screens in people's life. There's so many things that get thrown up as... You know, it comes from all kinds of things, right? It comes from people's concepts of religions, people's, you know, in America, who, who, okay, certainly in, in where we live, who isn't, who are we going to talk to that doesn't have a caricature of Christians that are gun-toting, people-hating, interventionists, empire, warmonger, Trump? people. Like, if you ask, if we were to poll our neighborhood, what do you think a Christian is? That's the kind of answers we're going to get. And so when we're engaging with people in conversations about religion and Christ and the truth of the kingdom, that's a lot of the, that's a lot of the bluster and the dust in the way of having that conversation and learning how to let that dust settle and, and, and use questions to get to the heart of people and bypass all of that smoke and all of that hot air and get back to the root of people's lives and see what's really, who are you as a person? Like, what do you struggle with? What are your difficulties? People want to be heard. And there's very few avenues where people are heard. I mean, the mental health crisis in America, the incredible rise of 
of paid therapy and all kinds of things and synthetic community. And there's so many markers that you can look to to see that people are, people are missing real connection in their life. And if we can provide that, this is an evangelistic opportunity. Really caring about the people that we come into contact with whenever we can and getting to the heart of people and having an ear to hear them. These are the skills of the evangelist and the things that we should all emulate. How, uh, the ability to reveal Christ's love and care and compassion through their own life is an evangelistic skill. Caring when nobody else cares. Listening when nobody else will listen. These are incredible virtues of the evangelist. So what do we need from our evangelists as the church? Well, number one, we need evangelists. We, we need to grow. And, and I can't overstate this. Without, without people doing the work of evangelists, our churches wither up and die. Let me say this very, very clearly and very, very emphatically. If the church doesn't grow, if the church does not make disciples, any church that cannot and does not make disciples is not a living church. The main central purpose for the church's maintenance on earth, our job, our, our commission, our purpose, our reason for being is to, to find our lost brothers and sisters and bring them into the community. That is our agenda. That is our purpose. That is why we are here. Full stop. And, and I cannot take serious the claim of any body of believers as being an active living representation of the kingdom of God who does not do that and does not take it seriously. And I'm, I'm saying that emphatically enough. I mean it about us. I mean it about everywhere. If we lose the capacity to make disciples and bring them into the community, we, are, we do not have proper claim to the title church. That's the job. That's, that's, that's what we are here for. It has to be our central reason for being. So we need our evangelists. We need them to be confident and equipped and supported and recognized and valued. We need all those things to be here so that the evangelist feels good about doing their work. I talk to my churches when we start churches in other places. One of the conversations I always have with my new congregations is, you, are, you guys are not properly the church until you can make disciples and bring them in. We can do a lot of things in preparation for that. We can, we can teach you how to do spiritual assessments. We can organize your community. We can get you moved into a place. We can help you establish a new way of living. We can get the community set up and relations working. We can do a lot of stuff in preparation, but we don't actually... We don't actually get to claim that we're doing, that we're being the church until we start making disciples and bringing them into the community. That's that. That's that's the marker. That's the hurdle. We can move people into cities all over the world if they can't make disciples. 
we're wasting our time, money, attention, and energy. Has to be, has to be the goal. And we need to measure our, our livelihood. We need to measure our capacity, our fruitfulness, and our obedience by our capacity to do this work. So we need our evangelists to be, you know, supported and, and valued. We also need our evangelists to accurately portray the gospel. And what I mean by that is that the evangelistic impulse is, can be wrong. What do you mean by that? I mean, there, there are ways that the evangelistic impulse gets discharged in certain places under certain paradigms that is wrong. Uh, like, for instance, child evangelism, when people focus on trying to make children Christians instead of make adults Christians. Like, if, if by child evangelism we mean provide some kind of support to young people's lives, encourage them with Bible stories, be there to be friends so that when they grow up in a community they know where, what, how to mark Christians, okay, whatever. But if what we mean by child evangelism, what it meant when I was a child, is that we're trying to get five-year-olds to say a prayer to give their heart to Jesus, that's, that's a wrong impulse for evangelistic people to be pursuing. And it happens very often. Um, other distortions in the gospel. Uh, you know, perversions of the gospel that get reverberated all throughout time and place cheap gospel here's another one is is when when the evangelistic impulse takes over so much that the church becomes so number driven that they're not quality driven that getting people to sign cards and say that they're and come forward or get baptized when it's not equaling changed lives and real conversion that that's a, that's a misdirection of the evangelistic impulse. And so we need our evangelists to be properly trained in the gospel, in the true gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, with Jesus centrally located as the king of the kingdom, with his law and his way being the imperatives of the gospel message. The gospel needs to be pure and biblical. Namely, the gospel that Jesus presented. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the gospel message. That's the evangelion that Jesus puts in his disciples' mouths. And that's the one that we want to create as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the, that's the shortest expression of the gospel message. And it's the necessary components. Repentance, like you have to, you have to realign yourself with God because... The kingdom of God is being manifest among us <clears throat> with Jesus as its king. Because that pure gospel aligns people properly. And what I mean by that is like, I talk about this all the time. And when we talk about the gospel is that if the gospel message is... <clears throat> Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so you don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. Just say this prayer, and then you get in. That's one form of the gospel. 
that's often touted. That's probably the most repeated version of the gospel that happens in the West. Versus repent for the kingdom of heaven's hand. There's a king that came. He's establishing a nation. And he wants us to come in. And the way you do that is through repenting and agreeing with him. Well, what's the consequences of t- those two different versions? Well, if the gospel is about me not going to hell and going to heaven, sign me up. Like, where's my ticket? Like, I'll sign on the dotted line. That's a great deal. But once I've got my ticket, there's nothing more for me to do. Like, I'm, I, I'm forgiven. I'm all set. And so the rest of this stuff in the Bible, maybe it pertains, maybe it doesn't, maybe we'll do it, maybe we won't. But that's not really what the gospel is about. The gospel is about Jesus forgiving my sins. He did that. That's great. Carry on. When I'm dead, then we'll punch the ticket and away I go to heaven. Hooray. That's what I grew up with. But if, if the message is Jesus is the king of a kingdom and he's establishing his nation here now as a rival nation to all these other nations, and he wants you to give your allegiance to him, to follow him, when you tell those people in the context of that gospel, and here's what he said. He said to love your enemies. He said you can't get divorced and remarry. He said you have to... You have to be mindful of the possessions that you have. You have to care for the poor. You have to, all these things that Jesus teaches and says, they're up, they become a part of the gospel because the gospel is to come into the kingdom in allegiance to the king. So what the king says matters for whether or not you're a part of it. It's a central premise. So the gospel needs to be pure in the mouths of our evangelists. They need to accurately reflect those things. And the other thing that I love about Jesus' very simple expression in the mouth of 70, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It implies participation in the nation. It implies citizenship. It implies that, that I am not the central focus. The kingdom of God is the central focus. Jesus is the central focus of the gospel, not me. Praise God, I can be a part of it. But what it is, is not me going to heaven. What it is, is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's what I'm being invited to. I'm not being invited to heaven. I'm not being invited to not have to deal with the consequence of my sin. I'm being invited to be a part of the people of God, the nation that Jesus is erecting on earth. I'm part of the people. Part of the people. It's not... The individual is not the central premise. What Jesus as Messiah is building here on earth is the central premise. His nation and everything that that includes, what he wants humanity to be, that's what we're being invited to. So, <clears throat> so how do we, how do we um, recognize our evangelists and how do we make space for them? That's, that's where I always like to conclude these examinations. Like, okay, what's, so, so this is important. I think these are really important things to discuss for people who are evangelists, but what about those of us that aren't? If that's not my gift, if I'm in a different place on this, on this list... What, what is my job in knowing this? Well, I think because this, this gift is central to the gospel and its dissemination, I think these are people that we should watch and learn from. 
I think that the, because there's a lot of skills involved that are not just natural inclinations and not just natural giftings. There's a lot of skills involved in how these people work and create, create this space for God in people's lives that we can learn from and that we can ever, I guess my, my point is this, you don't have to be a capital E evangelist to do the work of an evangelist. There's room for all of us to be practicing these skills. And we talked about some of that at the beginning. The other thing is, is looking for these people and, 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 um, and knowing to follow their example in this way. Um, there's a... There's a way of thinking about all of these gifts in relation to each other. And, and I think what, what, what I do when I think about the gifts is I think about what is that gift's relation to the other gifts and how do those other gifts relate to this gift? So what I mean by that is that... So if we go back to Apest, right? The, these, these gifts are all nested with each other. They're, they're mutually dependent on one another. So, uh, and, uh, uh, what's, the, what's the apostolic relationship to the evangelist? Well, the apostle is creating these communities of faith. He, he's, he's responsible for these places where there wasn't an outpost of the kingdom, and now there is, and the communities that go along with it, so there's a place for the evangelists to work out of. There are translocal evangelists, and, and that happens, but primarily the work of the evangelist happens in the local setting. They're within the church. They're in the neighborhoods and with the people around the church community where they're doing most of their work. And so the apostle is creating a space for the evangelist to work in. And, and these issues, you know, the purity of the gospel and, and the message and the teachings of the church are all part of that too. What does the prophet do in relation to the evangelist? Well, <clears throat> the evangelist is, is, is inviting people in and making those, you know, dynamic spaces for people to have relationships with the gospel. But the prophets are maintaining the covenants. They're talking about what's the cost of this? What's our responsibility? What's our obligation? So the evangelist is bringing people to God and the prophet is talking about what our responsibility to God is. So, so, so they, they work, they work in, in the opposite direction. So the prophet saying, here's what we have to, as God's people, here's what our obligation to him is. The evangelist is telling people that are, that are aliens from the commonwealth, they're saying, if you come in, here's the experience that you can have with God. And then they come in and the prophet says, now that God has saved us and redeemed us, here's, what we, here's our obligations to him. Here's what covenant faithfulness looks like. Here's the things that we need to do in, in honor and respect of, of, of God. And then <clears throat> the shepherds' relation to the evangelist, what do they do? Well, the evangelist is a good recruiter, but they're not, they're not typically retainers. Because as soon as somebody comes in, they want to go back out and get another one. They're fishers, right? So I landed these fish in the boat. You guys clean them up. I'm going to go get more fish. That's, that's how this process works. And it's the shepherds inside the church when people come in that are responsible for taking them and helping them work through, helping them grow, pointing them in the right direction, keeping, keeping, shepherding them on the right path, showing them the way to keep going. Here's, now that you're here, here's how you grow. And then the teacher 
What's his relation to the evangelist? The teacher is providing a lot of the like muscle and sinew on the skeleton of the church's teaching. He, when people come into the church, then it's the teacher's job to say, here's the what and why for. Here's how to think about this. Here's the principles that are involved. Here's the, so this is, the shepherd's job is more about individual growth. And this is, this is about the ideas and principles of the church. And so you can see that this, how central this one gift is in all the other, in all these other occupations. We need these people, bring people into the church so the church can operate in, in creating this wholeness that's promised from the, the chapter of Ephesians. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. The next time I speak, we'll, we'll talk about um, shepherds, which I'm really looking forward to. It's another dynamic ministry. Why don't we pray, and then I'll have Spencer come and close. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you've given to your church. They're really precious things, and I marvel at them. I think they're the most beautiful things. And to think of, of Jesus himself descending into Hades and leading captivity captive and giving us these gifts, these are like the things that he's dredged up from death itself and delivered to his people as our victorious crown over death and sin and the wicked one. And Father, we want to exercise these things well. We want to use them to their full effect. We don't want them to be in vain. We want to learn how to, to perfect them and to work together with them. We want to see them for what they are, and we want to get all of the good that we can out of the things that Jesus bore to his church. Father, we recognize them as necessary things. They're needful to us. They're not options. Father, we want to be a fruitful people. I beg of you in Jesus' name to pour out your grace that we would be a fruitful people, that we would have the right combination of gifts and abilities and love for one another and love for our fellow man, that we could be the change that you want in the world, that we could redeem souls out of darkness and lostness and misery and brokenness. Father, I ask for your help in these things. Pray specifically that you'd help us to see and empower our evangelists, to learn from them, to equip them and strengthen them for the work and make them mighty, Father, for the good of your kingdom and your son and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.